Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner podcast series here on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. To kick off the podcast series for 2024, glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, the Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy for the Americas, Leslie Falconio. We're excited to welcome back to the podcast as well from our partners at Columbia Threadneedle Investments, Gene Tenuzzo. Gene serves as the global head of fixed income for the firm. Uh, with that, Gene, Leslie, thank you for spending some time today with our listeners. Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation with Gene. Welcome back. Thank you, Dan. And, and thank you, Gene. I really appreciate you taking the time. And this is, um, you know, a great segue to sort of start off the year in terms of what's priced in and what variations that we'll see in in 2023, so from 2023. So thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. So let's sort of get right down to it in terms of, you know, what happened in 2023, how you reflect on the 2023 performance, and what sort of you see evolving for the first part of the first half of 2024 for rates and risk assets. Sure. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Leslie. I Really happy to be back on uh, the podcast here. And, you know, looking back at 2023, I think the best thing we can say as bond investors is that it wasn't 2022. Um, 2022 was a, was a uh, hardening experience, to say the least, and, and the worst bond market in, in recent decades. Um, you know, if we look at 2023, the really pattern of returns it didn't change for most of the year. If I look at the first 10 months of the year, the Bloomberg U.S. aggregate bond market index was down about two and three quarters percent. And if the year would have ended, you know, on Halloween, October 31st, you would have said it was the third consecutive negative year and one of the worst total return years in the history of the index. But thanks to a couple of really strong months at the end of the year in November and December, as the Fed started to make more accommodative sounds about inflation getting closer to their target and the possibility for lower rates in 2024, we actually ended up with a, with a pretty good year. And so you look at a U.S. aggregate that for the year returned 5.5%, and you say, boy, that was, a, that was a decent return, and it was probably slightly above the yield at the start of the year. And so... You know, it was a it was an interesting journey as we think about the course of 2023, one where you can come up with a lot of themes and conversations to describe a market that, if you just looked at the 10-year Treasury, went absolutely nowhere, from a yield of 388 to start the year to a yield of 388 to end the year. But I think if we look forward in terms of uh, what lies ahead for 2024. The theme is actually very different than what we've seen the last two years for fixed income. Um, You know, for one, I think the consensus expectations are in a very different place. As we sat here one year ago, the consensus called for a recession of varying degrees. And we see that, at least in terms of the, the market consensus, that seems to have been removed. What we actually saw last year was a soft landing, at least for the 12 month period of 2023. Growth was stable, if not you know, better than that. If we look at periods like the third quarter, we'll get a look at the fourth quarter coming up here soon in January. But um, also inflation 
went down without having any material pain inflicted on growth or the labor market. So that, I think, by definition, is a soft landing. Not to say it, it, it's a permanent fixture going forward, but the market seems to assign it uh, a higher probability, meaning those those calls for recession seem to have dwindled. doesn't necessarily mean the chances of recession are lower, but I think it also tells you what's reflected in the price. And I think as we go forward, there are a couple of things that are, are really important to remember that shape our outlook for uh, 2024. The first is that you know, the Fundamental backdrop has changed as it relates to inflation. So inflation was the headwind that caused the monumental shift in monetary policy in early 2022. And that is the element that is changing um, that will allow for, once again, a shift in monetary policy in 2024 towards lower rates rather than higher rates. We can talk more about that. Um, but also importantly, if we look at valuations, specifically in credit markets, many areas of credit, particularly in the corporate bond space, are very expensive. So that story about a soft landing is well entrenched and well assumed in valuations. So while we generally feel pretty good about the fundamental outlook, we generally have a constructive outlook on corporate fundamentals, leverage, the way that management teams are managing corporate balance sheets, we have to step back and realize that just looking, for example, at investment-grade industrial company bonds, you're within the top decile of richness or most expensive 10% of the time um, for those credit spreads, and it is less common to get positive excess returns versus treasuries when that is your starting point. So, uh, Fundamentally, we feel good. Valuation-wise, we feel cautious, and you mix it together, and I think it's it's a story about being selective in 2024. So when we think about, and, and I completely agree with that, what's interesting is when we, let's, I want to shift to the Fed for a moment. And the one thing about 2023 that you, that you laid out, which is absolutely right, that we ended, and we started in the year around that 388, but as you know, the gap in between was a three and a quarter to 501. So huge yep. amount of interest rate volatility. So when we think about what the market is pricing in for the Fed, right, in 2024 right now, um, and we think about just review just what interest rate volatility did in 23 and how you see it evolving in 2024, what's your, what's your thought on, on the Fed's path and where do you see interest rates sort of heading throughout the course of the year? Well, that, that is, I think, the question that we'll be discussing over the next 12 months. I think it's important, you know, the, the message that we heard from Fed Governor Christopher Waller earlier today, which is we are seeing, the Fed, they are seeing inflation come close enough to their target of 2%, and on a six-month basis, core inflation is at or below that target just slightly, that that makes them comfortable enough to cut rates this year. And I think that that is, you know, important step number one. Now, step number two, to, to your point, Leslie, is, well, wait a minute. The market's already pricing in rates to be about a percent and a half lower by the end of the year. Is that enough? Is that too much? And, and what are we kind of thinking here? And, you know, for me, this is a little bit the reverse of what we thought in 2022. And if I, if I sort of reflect back to 2022, um, 
when when the opposite was happening, inflation was accelerating, the Fed looked very much offside because its interest rate was well below the rate of inflation. Interest rates started to rise as the Fed started signaling that rates would go up. And there was a temptation, and I think you know, even you know, we certainly could have done a better job at you know, in reflection. Look, when we think about the temptation of oh, rates went up a little bit in 2022, we should add because they probably went up too far. But really, the Fed realized it had a large gap it had to clear, and there was a lot more for rates to rise as we went through later 2022 and early 2023. I think a lot of those themes are true in reverse. In 2024, which is the Fed's realizing its policy rate at near five and a half percent is well above the core inflation rate that, as Governor Waller would say over the last six months, has been 1.97 percent. And they don't want that to get tighter. It's not about um, growth necessarily slowing. It's not about a collapse in the labor market. They're saying that they don't want, just because inflation has come down, real interest rates to be um, passively higher. And so I think they, they want to see those rates come down. And what we, we will be debating is one and a half percent of cuts the right number as we go through the course of the year. I suspect that will wiggle around. I suspect we will have a wide range in the 10-year Treasury, just as we did last year. But I think, again, it goes back to don't lose the plot. Don't take the, the sort of the wrong side of this. And, you know, sort of in simple terms, it's a little bit like the old don't fight the Fed mantra, which is Interest rates are likely to go lower. That's likely to steepen the curve and benefit sort of two to five year maturities more than the long end of the curve. I think that's where you want to be exposed. And I think you just, I wouldn't want to make bets on short term interest rate futures. I wouldn't want to make bets on whether it's the March meeting or the May meeting or exactly which one and which magnitude. But I think that direction is clear and it's not going to be a move by quarter point or a half point, it's going to be a more meaningful move as we think about the course of the year. So I think that the market is fairly priced. And then I think the the upside to bond prices or the downside surprise to yield that could come is the one where we start talking a little bit less about inflation and a little bit more about downside risks to growth. The truth is we haven't been realizing those downside risks to growth. I think you have to really be um, squinting you know, at the economic data to say, you know, here are some little pockets of weakness. But the truth is that, again, to the sort of what is the consensus not talking about, a year ago we were talking about recession and now we're not. So I think from a from a credit standpoint, the risk is wider credit spreads due to some economic surprise of economic weakness. And on the interest rate side, if that does come into scope, then I think the Fed could be cutting by actually more. And and so, you know, right now we're not talking about interest rate cuts because of a growth shock. We're only talking about what I'll call interest rate fine tuning because of inflation being lower. If that growth shock does come, there's a lot more uh inside for, for front end rates. Uh, you know, I agree with that too. And then just from from CIO's perspective, just in terms of our view, I mean, you know, we are in one of those soft landing camps. And um, we, we do, we do believe in the soft landing. We are, we, listen, we have growth coming down, right? We have GDP probably at around a 2%, which obviously, given what we've seen, is lower, but we don't think it's one that is a, you know, red flag to, you know, a recession, nor are we anticipating a hard landing. And, you know, from our perspective, we think a March rate cut is a little premature, 
we look for May. Um, but again, I mean, it's one of those, we expect the point of it to be and to see volatility, particularly interest rate volatility in the first half of the year, and then hopefully trend lower, you know, and expected to trend lower in the second half. But when we think about like positioning here, Gina, we, you know, listen, we've had an inverted yield curve for a tremendously long period of time. Um, where would you be positioned, like on the yield curve? I think you said around that two to five years. So you, so you're more into like we we prefer the belly as well because in terms of leading, in terms of um, monetary policy, and we do anticipate that pivot this year, even though the market might be pricing it a little bit earlier than we anticipate. But again, it's not going to be a 2024. Okay, you're done easing. It's going to move into 2025 as well. And the fixed income market is pretty forward looking. So how do you, how would you position? Um, your duration here, and what do you think on the shape of the yield curve going into the end of the year or the second half of the year? That, that's a great way to frame it, Leslie. And I, and I think um, one of the conversations we're having a lot with clients that we haven't really had over the last two years is reinvestment risk. There's been a, I think, I don't want to say easy trade, but maybe a convenient trade over the last few years as the Fed was hiking, hiking, hiking by you know, at times 75 basis points at a time, the convenient trade was just to be positioned in cash or money markets or CDs because you can get as attractive a yield, if not slightly more attractive, of an outright yield given the shape of the yield curve. But I think that reinvestment risk is important for a couple of reasons. You know, one, um, we've already seen, for example, in the fourth quarter, um, you know, just the conversation about lower rates ahead can drive stronger price performance in the long end, or even the intermediate part of the curve, relative to cash, even when the Fed hasn't cut yet. That's point number one. And point number two is, boy, you know, it's nice to get a 5.5% annualized yield on cash, um, but that can go away quickly. And it's, it's an annualized yield that, you know, as soon as the Fed cuts, you know, that's not locked in, whereas if you were to invest for a you know five to seven year period, that that is locked in, and so that's where you know for us if we had to pick a place on the curve, it would probably be that you know I guess we like to call the belly of the curve as well, kind of that five year point. And if you can lock in a yield of you know around four percent when inflation is trending towards two percent, you know that's a pretty attractive real yield. And then you know the thing I would add to that is one of the I think key learnings from 2022 was that in an environment of high inflation, particularly one in which the Fed is responding to that inflation by hiking rates, in high-quality fixed income, you can lose that diversification benefit for a time, that diversification benefit that says, oh, bonds do well when equities don't or when credit doesn't. But in an environment where inflation is falling, you're starting to see that you can get that diversification benefit back, and you don't get that diversification benefit from cash and money market instruments that you do get from longer dated high quality fixed income. So to me, that's kind of how we're thinking about the the yield curve at at, at this point in time. I do think you know the, the, you you mentioned it earlier. We should start to see lower interest rate volatility as we proceed through um, the second half of the year, and that is something where I think if you want to trade that's levered to high quality fixed income and lower interest rate volatility, I think mortgage-backed securities do exceptionally well in that environment without taking on a lot of credit risk. 
Yeah, and that's to tell you, that's one of our favorite positions is the mortgage-backed security area, and 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 it brings me to just like an interesting point when we think about because you addressed you know investment-grade corporates earlier in the conversation, how much spreads have compressed in that sector, um, and so when we think about not just in the the IG side, but just how well those sectors that had higher credit embedded you know components in 2023 did. You know, partly because everyone thought there'd be a recession in the first part of 23, only to be proven wrong. A lot of cash on the sidelines. And we, we know that both the consumer and corporate balance sheets ended up being stronger than was was originally anticipated entering into 23. So when we've had such a strong outperformance of, say, lower credit quality spreads versus, say, higher, and, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, private credit. Okay. And, and we know, right. and, you know, I'm sure like yourself, I mean, Private credit has just really taken off the past year um, in particular as people sort of move from the syndicated loan more into direct lending. And, you know, when an asset class takes off, sometimes it could have, you know, both positive and negative headline risk. So I'm just curious as to sort of how do you see that private credit landscape evolving from here and, and you know, particularly given um, the growth we've seen in the sector? It's a great um, topic. The private credit market, by many measures, is similar in size to the high-yield bond market, similar in size to the uh, broadly syndicated loan market, each somewhere around a trillion and a half in size. So I, I think it's fair to say private credit has established itself as a market that is more than a trend and is not going away. I think when we parse the private credit market, increasingly going forward, Strategies and managers that have a differentiated capability will, um, you know, set themselves apart. I, I think we will spend less time talking about private credit as a homogenous asset class and more time talking about levered middle market lending, direct lending, private credit, structured finance, private credit, um, talking about commercial real estate backed private credit and a variety of other types. Um, but I do think there's probably been a bit of um, over excessive enthusiasm, perhaps, for what I'll call the, the core of private credit, which is corporate direct lending. And the reason I say that is in the environment where the Fed does not cut quickly, let's say they wait until May or June, or maybe they're only cutting in 25 basis point increments, maybe not as fast as the market hopes. Well, most corporate direct lending is to middle market or, or sort of non-large cap companies at floating interest rates with a pretty wide credit spread. And that can be attractive to investors because you get a high yield. But the truth is that the cost of capital for a lot of these companies has increased to the point where um, their interest coverage, if they have to maintain that burden over uh, you know, a long period of time, their interest coverage is negative, meaning they're not generating enough cash flow to cover their their interest costs, and that's that's ultimately how how companies get into you know financial stress. So I think there will be uh, pockets of financial stress in in direct lending, as there will be in other floating rate asset classes. I don't think it's catastrophic should the um, the the soft landing continue to play out, but I would just highlight that it's sort of a narrow uh, set of outcomes that keep that market um, 
really performing at a really high level. I think to the extent that we continue to see that more benign economic scenario, you know, one of the things we said a year ago is, you know, floating rate bank loans are the um, the soft landing home run trade. I think that's largely true. If we look at 13% total returns in 2023, I think they're still well positioned in 2024 if that soft landing continues to play out. But the benefit is you have liquidity, where in most private credit, you don't have liquidity, at least not on a um, you know, very frequent basis. And so I, I, w- I would advise, or we've been considering in portfolios where where we think that there is opportunity in better credit quality, relatively speaking, um, pockets of the leveraged loan market, we've been adding to that generally as we've been reducing high-yield bond exposure because we think that market's expensive. But I, I don't want to be just the, the, the public fixed-income guy who's bashing private credit. I, I, it's not that at all. I think private credit absolutely is a permanent fixture of our markets going forward. I just think it's one where on a go-forward basis, we're going to be talking about the market less homogeneously and much more specific to the, the pockets of credit and the parts of the economy to which that credit is flowing. So when we think about, you know, with that said, and let's just think about some of the, what I like call, you know, the pockets of vulnerability in 2024, if you will, or some of the, or some of the risks in the marketplace, particularly given the fact that, you know, the starting level of risk assets pretty much across the board. I mean, I think mortgage credit is cheaper than corporate credit. But, you know, pretty much across the board, we had November, December, where it's huge spread compression, as you mentioned earlier. You know, we're looking at, um, you know, very good carry in the fixed income market, but actually less than what we saw starting the year prior. But so when we think about, you know, these pockets of vulnerability or potential risks that the market could see and which could be a headwind to fixed income performance, given the fact the expectation for fixed income in 2024 is is positive. I mean, it's not might not be 10, 12 percent, but it's you know mid to high single digits for most sectors. So, where do you think about, or you know, where's so what keeps you up at night? And as we sort of go through and transition through, um, you know, the pivot of the Fed and uh, entering a year where they're not necessarily screamingly cheap. Right. So I think the if you, if you surveyed bond managers, I think one of the more common responses to that question would be, well, you know, maybe that the Fed or inflation ends up being higher than, than we anticipated. I, I personally think that's less of the risk for 2024 because we're all, we're all talking about that already. We're all focused on that already. To me, I think the risks are the things that we're talking less about. At least you, you read less about it and see less about it in the financial press, you know. And I will, I'll cite one example that's sort of internal and one that's external. You know, the internal is you know we're starting to see uh, deterioration in consumer fundamentals. And so one of the things we like to look at with our research team is, you know, with all of the consumer debt data that we have from mortgage loans to consumer loans to auto and, and student loans, etc. How are borrowers performing based in stratified into different borrower types based on credit score, age, geography, uh, all kinds, you know, home ownership or rentership status, et cetera. And when we sort of parse that data, what we start, we've started to see 
is an increase in consumer delinquencies in auto loans, in consumer loans, and in mortgage loans that has started to broaden. Now, before you know, people get too worried, I, it, this is not at um, 2008-type levels by any stretch, but it's a definite trend that has moved from, well, delinquencies were very, very low, and now they're just normalizing, to, okay, now we're starting to see delinquencies go to above average levels in some areas. I don't think enough of the market is talking about and so I think if that were to continue or for some reason accelerate, I think that could be a shock to the consensus, and that could be something that is not just a uh, you know, structured products issue, but something that would be a fundamental issue to consumer demand across you know, a variety of risk assets. The second thing which I would describe as an external shock would be you know, just as we think about the growth profile overseas. Now, maybe there's some things that are stabilizing growth as we look at Europe and, and China, but overall, the, the international growth outlook has been softer than what we've seen in the U.S., and some of the geopolitical risk um, that, that we've seen, particularly in the Middle East, but also what continues to be an ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and we've been surprised by how Minimally, that's impacted, for instance, the commodity markets and the energy markets. I think a, a, a negative shock would be that that you know, escalates further, and we partly pair that with a with an energy supply shock, maybe a little bit like what we saw at the beginning of 2022, and that could potentially crimp consumer demand as well. So these things are probably low risks, but they're growing, and those low but growing risks take on higher importance at a time when credit spreads are particularly expensive. So, you know, for us, we kind of mix it all together and say, well, you know, you, let's be careful about investing where we don't think we're being paid for it. In credit markets, we're you know, less exposed to, uh, in corporate credit markets, less exposed to industrials, but we're more exposed to things like financials and big banks where you're being paid uh, multiples more um, from a yield and spread perspective um, in high-quality, large, big-six U.S. banks compared to what you're paid in cyclical industrial companies. So we like that trade. We like, as we talked about, investment-grade mortgage-backed securities relative to corporates. We do think that bank loans are attractive relative to high-yield bonds. So I think there's relative value trades as you go all around the, the market. And I think that, that gets us pretty excited, but o overall centered around a portfolio that remains more investment grade in nature, just given where valuations are at this stage. Yeah, and, and we have a tendency to, to agree, and I'm glad you got specific about your allocations because that was going to be my next question. And actually, you know, we, we agree as well. We, we like the financials part of the IG market. We like agency MBS. Um, you know, for us right now, we're neutral on high yield and senior loans. But we did start to take a look at the CMBS side. Do you have any thoughts on CMBS, like higher quality? You felt in terms of any thoughts yeah. that side? I think it's an area that, you know, it's become very clear that the commercial property market is has seen struggling fundamentals. I think in most cases, the CMBS market has reflected that. The risk or the, you know, slightly hairier issues are where we have uh, what we call conduit CMBS versus SASB, and I'll explain what that means. So conduit CMBS is where a whole basket of property loans are packaged into one bond, 
So as you go down the capital structure in that bond, in that CMBS, um, the lower you are in the capital structure, the more you are exposed to the worst performers of that, the loans in that basket. That gets a little hairier because, you know, if you have a broad distribution of loans, the weakest of those loans is exposed to all the things you read about, offices with low vacancy rates in weaker metropolitan areas, et cetera. When you look at the SASB market, which stands for single asset, single borrower, well, you, as you might expect, you have a wide variety of fundamental situations, but you have the ability to pick loan by loan and, and really find areas where you think that um, perhaps the market is, is giving you a very attractive risk premium for the fundamentals there. In fact, you know, we've seen some of those single asset, single borrower deals that are rated as high as AAA but they're trading at about a 300 basis point or a 3% credit spread over treasuries, which is similar to what you would get in double B rated high yield bonds. So to that point, I think it's, it's not to say, oh, the, the fundamental problems in commercial real estate are over, but are there opportunities to make money in that space within CMBS? I think there are. Um, and so I think for us now, 2023 was a year of reducing CMBS. 2024 is a year of being very selective, but, Know, being able to cherry pick some alpha ideas. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's, that's another area too where we actually agree because we feel the same way. I mean, we really stayed away from CNBS in 2023. And again, you have to be selective. There's no question, but we also feel that there's been a lot of negativity priced in, and because we are taking more of the soft landing stance, it is a sector that we do believe is definitely cheap to even to things like investment grade corporates. So any any final thoughts that, that you want to leave us with in terms of what you're thinking or positioning? And this has been a great conversation, so I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I appreciate it too. Thanks, Leslie. I mean, like I think, you know, as we, as we think about the outlook for 2024, we remain constructive in general. And I think there's still a lot of money that you know, was pulled out of fixed income markets, both taxable and tax exempt over the last two years, that will be looking for a home when those uh, cash rates aren't as high as they as they are today. So I think that's going to be a positive technical as we go forward. But, you know, as we just discussed, the, the risk premium compression and the significant outperformance of low quality, I think that that's probably run its course. Great, Gene. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And, you know, we look forward to having you on the podcast again. Thanks, Leslie. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.